Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today live, or at least in person, is Elise, who has been with us here for the Thanksgiving holiday. Yay! We're in person for the first time! Woo! In real life. Is this real life? (laughs) Or is this just fantasy? I it's something. Going there. It's We're something. recording live, and that's why the recording is much more echoey than usual. If you're listening to this podcast for the first time ever, it doesn't sound this way always, but it will always be this fun. This setup, which sounds like we are podcasting from inside a tunnel, was actually the recommendation of our producer, Ryan. Are you thanking him or blaming him? Depends on what people think yeah, of the like episode. If people are like, oh yeah, this audio is great, then... We're thanking him. Yes. <laughs> Ryan is, last I checked, available for parties. <laughs> and all of your karaoke needs. Between the end of November and the beginning of our annual holiday series watch, this year it's going to be... Is it Star Trek? No. Is it... There aren't any other stars. Stargate would be your next Oh, one. Stargate. Is it Stargate? No. Is it... Star Trips? (laughs) Star Tours? We're going to do a minute-by-minute analysis of the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. 11 episodes just on the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. Which is weird because it's longer than 11 minutes, but, you know. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. What are we doing, Sam? Oh, what are we actually doing? Star Wars. 11 days of it, starting next week. Whether you like it or not. Well, I mean, if you don't like it, you don't have to listen. Between those two things, we're having this magical and echoey episode about holiday movies, Christmas films specifically this year. Knowing Elise was coming to visit, we planned a whole day for these three films. We watched all three of them yesterday. We were extremely lazy and it was wonderful. It's really what the holiday season is about. I mean, isn't that how you should watch Christmas films? All in one day on the couch and nobody showers and you just eat lots of carbs? I I showered. I did too, actually. Okay, well, I didn't shower. And uh, I was fine. No one complained. So you all are too nice. I did enjoy the carbs. The carbs, the cookies. I took some baking breaks. I think this is the first time that I've had to point out that podcasting is an olfactory medium. (laughs) Usually we're talking about how it's a visual medium. Today, podcasting is not scratch and sniff. (laughs) Thank God. Today, we are going to debrief them and go through these three pretty classic Christmas movies, I think. A lot of people really do list all three of these movies on a lot of their Christmas film lists. So before we get to that, though, I did want to ask the question, why do we think Christmas films are so enduringly popular? People love these films. There are some people that watch these films year round because, I don't know, I guess that's the question. Why Why do we think they are so popular? And I realize the irony of asking this of a Jewish person, and in fact, having a Jewish person on this episode to talk about Christmas movies, especially since I know you don't celebrate Christmas, Elise, but you do love Christmas movies. So I thought I'd turn to you first. I think for between Jewish New Year and you know, of the calendar year, it's a really good time to reflect on the last year and how you spent it and what you want for your future. I don't believe in resolutions and stuff, but I do believe in having intentions for what you want 
And I think Christmas movies offer reflection and hope. And I, I really think that's, I mean, there are examples like Die Hard, which we can get into later, but like, <laughs> I do think that in general, Christmas movie is hopeful and happy and that is always a nice thing. How do you feel about Christmas movies? Like, do you make a distinction between Christmas movies that are about like the season of like hope and charity and reflection, like you said, and like religious Christmas movies? Because those do exist, the ones that are specifically very Christian or that have like Christian references or underlying threads. I don't think that the latter group of movies is something I ever think about. I was just wondering if you would actually thought about the difference or if you even thought about those films at all. No, I don't. I doubt I've seen one. Okay, fair. Absolutely fair. Sam, why do you think Christmas movies are so enduringly popular? Uh, well, it's the Yuletide corollary to the Lasberg principle. Why do you hate <laughs> joy? And the, the thing that happens in November is people are finally fed up with the last ten and a half months of shit <laughs> that late capitalism has put on to us, which I think is why it's great that we're talking about A Christmas Carol this week, because this is really the start of that nonsense, where uh, unless you're a seasonal retail worker, you're starting to kind of throttle down for the rest of the year, and, I mean, you can talk about reflection and all that stuff if you want, but basically we're all exhausted at the end of the year, and nobody has time for anybody else's shit, and you just want to watch a Christmas movie that'll make you feel joy, because you weren't allowed to feel it for the last ten and a half months, except for maybe the week you got to take off for vacation if you were lucky. That is fair. I mean, a lot of Christmas movies, with some exceptions, are about cheer and about having, yeah. you know, being around your family, whether that's a chosen family or a blood family, celebrating in some way. Well, so you do you can, think that movies help with that sort of affect in well, the Well, you audience? can look at the two main genres of Christmas films. There is the Home Alone genre, the <laughs> Home for the Holidays genre, the Family Stone, mm -hmm. uh, all of the I hate my family, but Christmas is still transcendental for some reason, even though everybody's an asshole. Including me. <laughs> or, but, or the second genre, which is the Hallmark genre, which is complete fantasy. Well, yeah, but fantasy is hopeful in a lot of ways. Or, or it's escapist. I mean, it kind of depends on which way you want to go with it. But I, I like to think of it as more hopeful than escapist. The point is, the last month and a half of the year is like, it's like, um, oh, I know what it's like because the World Cup is now because it's the summer, apparently. <laughs> And I know what you're thinking. I do understand the Southern Hemisphere, but that's not where the World Cup is. It's like, it's it's stoppage time or lost time, depending on where you live in this world or all the other things that it's called. That's what the last month and a half of the year is. You kind of lose track of time. More might get added on. It really feels kind of timeless, but it's definitely got a different flow and a different feel. And, you know, I think that's why so many people want to start listening to Christmas music the day after Halloween's over. Because they're like, let's get to the part where it's not like the other part. Because this part sucks. I mean, that I think that that is a really good point. There is one other kind of Christmas movie, though, that we haven't mentioned. And we have to mention it because one of the movies we're talking about deals with this, which is the I'm an asshole and Christmas is a transformative experience that makes me right. into a better person. See... 
any version of A Christmas Carol or The Grinch, right? That's a very classic right. jingle all the way, right? Scrooged. You know, all of these films have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think people like that because it gives them this idea of, oh, I could become a better person or like we should be better people to each other. And like you said, a lot of those things come with anti-capitalism themes as well, which we should definitely talk about. Yeah, it's like the last part of Double Jeopardy and then Final Jeopardy. The scores can really change quickly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, None of this happens at Easter. Yeah, I know. Christmas does really feel like that one holiday. Like you do get some movies that are set at other holidays, but for the most part, Christmas seems to be the one that people find the most joy in, in terms of movies. Maybe not like in different religions or in different parts of the world, but like... The the film tradition of Christmas seems to be like the most, like you said, joyful or escapist or hopeful or reflective or whatever it is you want to call it. Well, I think it's easy to see it this way in um, especially the Northern Hemisphere. And then from that, you know, any country that celebrates Christmas nominally or in a religious sense. But I mean, it's the end of the year. Christmas Day is a couple of days after the darkest quote unquote, darkest day of the year. And I mean, that's, I think, as we know, Christmas is just capitalizing on a bunch of other cultures that got capitalized on. Well, I um, mean, almost every culture has some sort of midwinter festival, yeah, right? The point it's is, supposed to break up yeah. the winter. Christmas just happens to be a combination of a bunch of things with a big douse of Christianity over the top. Yeah, the point is, if it wasn't Christmas, it'd be something else. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's just not. Yeah, for now anyway. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Well, if Hallmark has its way. Yeah, it would be all year. Okay, back up. If Hallmark has its way, it'll always be Christmas. If Candace Cameron Bure has her way, it will always be straight. Yeah. Uh, so if she has her way, we'll have Matt on next year and it'll be a half hour episode. We'll bang that one out. <laughs> Just like the straights. There'll be a new straight week. I have, new doubled, week. I have doubled down on that joke now. <laughs> Well, join us next week when Matt's on the podcast again. Let's find out what happens. There you go. You just like brought that all the way back around to Star Wars. I did. Yeah, it's going to be fun talking about Star Trek Gate Wars. (laughs) It's like the uh, episode of Bob's Burgers we just watched where Zeke is like, I put all the swear words on the ceiling just in a row. And when Luis is like, which one did you decide to put on first? He's like, by sound. (laughs) If you're joining us for the first time, my role is to somehow say things directly related to the episode and take us off track at the same time. It's a talent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about the first film. So the first one chronologically is Christmas in Connecticut, which was the film I picked for this episode. I had never seen it before. It came out in 1945, but it is on a lot of people's favorite Christmas lists. I think the problem was is that for a long time, I thought that this was a film that there is another film that is similar to White Christmas. It is not Christmas in Connecticut, come to find out. But I thought that it was. Mm. And so I thought like, oh, this is just another version of White Christmas, but without the music or whatever. Right. And so I was surprised and delighted to find that it was not anything like White Christmas, except for the fact that it's on a farm. Right. This is a little known fact about this, right? So Jack Warner had a plan, right? (laughs) And so every year he was going to release a movie from 
a different state. So like Christmas in Connecticut, the next year, <laughs> Christmas in Vermont. It is, it is what we now know as the Sufjan-Stevens method, where we say we're going to do an album about each state every year and then never do a single one ever again because <laughs> you have no follow through. So Christmas in Connecticut is a romantic comedy. Really, it's a screwball film about an unmarried city magazine writer played by Barbara Stanwyck. She's a food writer who pretends to be a farm wife and a mother for her column. It's her persona that she puts on, even though she lives in an apartment in the city and is not married and does not have a child. But then she basically what happens is, is that her publisher Basically, what happens is Sam, who didn't turn her phone to silent, <laughs> is that her publisher, uh, who's played in Alexander Yardley, who's played by Sydney Greenstreet, decides to invite both himself and a war hero played by Dennis Morgan over to Elizabeth Lane's house for Christmas dinner. The problem is, of course, she doesn't have a house and she doesn't have a husband. So she doesn't want to get fired and she doesn't want her publisher to get fired. And so she decides to put together this ruse in order to convince everyone that Elizabeth Lane is real and that she actually has this life. And so obviously funny things ensue based on this because it's a screwball comedy and you have to have that screwball element. I have to say, I am not used to seeing any of these people in these types of movies. I... And I associate Barbara Stanwyck most with noir. We've already talked about her on this podcast in the, in the role of Phyllis in Double Indemnity. I know that she actually has done more comedy than she's done noir, but for whatever reason, I just never associate her with that. Uh, and I also associate Sidney Greenstreet more with mob and noir movies as well than I so associate him with comedy. So he really feels like he's also playing against type here. What were your reactions, first reactions to this? We'll start with me, the person who's already seen this movie. Yes. Uh, and, and this was a quasi-Sam Assigns. Yeah, because you, you gave me a couple of movies right. off my list that I've been meaning to watch for years. I have been trying to get you to watch this movie for a while now, and you've explained why it didn't uh, for a while. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out really, really quickly that uh, the notification on my phone that Tessa just dragged me for was, in fact, the the... The cause of which was our producer, Ryan. Oh, okay. And that's a true story. <laughs> um, the reason that you associate Warner Brothers with, with crime films is that Warner Brothers are the gangster film people. They did The Public Enemy, White Heat, Angels with Dirty Faces, Little Caesar, The Petrified Forest, The Roaring Twenties. Basically, they are the gangster film studio. And... And so this is a departure from that. But of course, we've already moved beyond the gangster film at the point that the um, Christmas in Connecticut movie comes out. The other thing, by the way, since we're going to talk about screwballs here, just very, very quickly, a screwball is a pitch in baseball that goes the opposite way of a curveball or a slider. So in other words, a screwball comedy is a comedy that goes in the opposite way that you think it will, right? Because this movie is set up with a, a war hero coming home and falling in love with a nurse. And the way this is supposed to go is it's supposed to be their love story. And it very much appears to be that until the very end when the movie, or the ball in this case, breaks the opposite way you think it's going to and chaos ensues. And then the movie's over. 
Right. And then the other couple in this is supposed to be Elizabeth and John. John is a friend who's been trying to get Elizabeth to marry him for a while. He's also the owner of this farm. And so she's she becomes his fiance just because she kind of gives up and is like, okay, like, I guess I'll just get married to you. But I also need to use your farm for this ruse. So there's a lot of like that going on where it feels like they should get together, but they don't. Well, it, it's not necessarily giving up. It's the decision to not be poor. Right, yeah. Which, I mean, we see played out in one of our other films today. You know, that not being poor is a... It's a motivator. A, a big plot motivator. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we see it in two other films, actually, that we do today. Well, yeah. Sort of. Slightly different ways, but yes. I also want to say, just in reference to your screwball comedy comment on this is that this really feels like the progenitor of a the Christmas comedy film in general that we know of today. Even though we don't see a lot of screwball comedies anymore, there is a lot in the DNA of this movie that we see in Netflix movies that come out every year or Hallmark movies that come out of year. These movies that are incredibly popular, but they often have similar premises. Right. Right. She's a romance author who doesn't remember what romance is. He is the grumpiest man alive who owns a castle. Exactly. They should never be together, except clearly they should. (laughs) Right. So, again, not a screwball comedy, but it does take Mm -hmm. a lot of its DNA from films like this. In fact, as we were watching it, we even picked out some scenes that we were like, oh, yeah, this is like one that we've seen in this movie before, which I'm going to let Elise talk about. Yeah. So I just want to back up a little bit and and mention the character of Felix, who is a chef at, I guess, a fancy restaurant in Manhattan, and that is who Elizabeth is getting her recipes from. And so she enlists Felix on this weekend to help fool the publisher, and I'm, like, so bad with these names, with the war hero guy's name. I don't remember. Jeffrey. Jeffy! Oh, Jeffy, Jeffy yes. Yeah. Jeffy. Apologies. <laughs> and there's a scene... Where Felix is trying to show her how to flip pancakes. And Tessa and I were like Leo pointing at it because there was a scene in the new Netflix movie Falling for Christmas with Lindsay Lohan where she is learning to flip pancakes. And it's almost, it's identical. Yeah, like uh, Elizabeth drops a pancake on the stove and so does Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Like it's almost the exact same I shot. I have to think it was, it was like an homage to this movie. Yeah, I mean, and we should definitely talk about Falling for Christmas when we talk about new stuff that's coming out, but I think there are actually several homages oh, in that sure, film yeah. and references to Lindsay Lohan's past filmography as well. So I, I think that that is a really interesting connection to make. I do want to talk about Felix, too. Uncle Felix, as he's as he calls himself and other people call was, him in this film. He was my favorite character in the movie. He steals every scene that he's in, and he's played by S.C. Sakal, who is a Hungarian film and stage actor who does a lot of character work in especially American films. He was in Casablanca as yeah. well, pretty famously. He's the head waiter. That's definitely what I knew him from. Yeah, most. he was also Jewish, which I don't think I knew before this, and I think, I, I didn't know this, but he was forced out of Germany and then out of Hungary because of the fact that he was Jewish, and this is set, or this did make take place in 1945. It is set during the war. And I think that it adds a lot to both this character and the Casablanca character to know that as yeah. well. Um, because, you know, he's essentially playing a refugee, like someone who's come over and has had to make this life for himself, which parallels Sakal's life, too, because he basically had to come to Hollywood because 
he was a big deal in Hungary, especially. And then he had to leave. So I think that that is a really interesting parallel. For sure. I loved it when he was like cooking the kidneys and Sidney Greenstreet was trying to get him to give him some kidneys. And he's like, I don't cook for people who are mean to my friends. Oh yeah, that was wonderful. It was so, so cute. Like he was there for Elizabeth, but he was not going to like, he wasn't going to do anything for anybody else. Yeah, I love their relationship. Um, it was definitely, even though they were joking that he was uncle, it was a very, like, uncle-niece relationship in a found family kind of way because obviously they're not really related. And it just was really, you really got the impression that Felix and her publisher and that guy that she was, like, debating on whether to marry are all friends at even if they just, Felix and the publisher tolerate the other guy, because they're, like, not thrilled about the guy that wants to marry her. Um, it just felt like they were real people that spent time together. Yeah, these characters this have a history. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. It, their relationships felt very lived in to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I also think, too, going on off of what you just said, that Elizabeth as a character is really interesting because she seems so cut off from family, like blood family. Yeah. She doesn't seem to have parents. She doesn't seem to have, like, anybody except for Felix and this job, right? This publishing job where she gets the publisher and John and all of that thing, that stuff. It's very interesting to me because this film seems like a commentary on gender roles in the media, the idea that she has to perform domesticity in order to write about food i mean she can't cook at all so it's you get some humor from the fact that she's a food columnist who can't cook yeah but the idea is that she has in order to publish she has to write about a certain thing which is this domestic role like i can't imagine that she wants to do this i imagine she probably went into this wanting to write about something else and then got kind of Put into this role right and so there's this idea that the person who's writing what we what is essentially idyllic domestic porn which is like a huge deal in the u.s we love these kinds of columns right where women like martha stewart and like women who like write about like how beautiful their homes are and how how much attention to detail they put into all their food and it makes the rest of us you know feel awful yeah uh, but it still like inspires us i guess I like the idea of this movie saying that's not real. Like, nobody actually is like that. Like, it's somebody who's in their apartment in New York, you know, spending six months' salary on a meat coat. Yes. You know, who's trying to, like, make their way through the world. And I think that that actually intersects really well with the idea that this is set at Christmas because Christmas often inspires a lot of this kind of, like, domestic inspiration porn or whatever yeah because there's this idea of like well let's see what martha stewart's house looks like for christmas or let's see how this celebrity's house looks like for christmas you know there's there's a lot of even though christmas is a hopeful time there are a lot of darker undercurrents a lot of times in the way that we culturally conceive of christmas and a lot of it has to do with domesticity yeah and i do think it also has an interesting comment on keeping up with our neighbors and our people that we see in media in, okay, well, we're supposed to have this big dinner and we're supposed to do this and that. And it, it makes me think about just obligations in general around the holidays and whether we decide to do holidays with family or friends and how that's very complicated. So the whole thing of pretending to do this, like she does, just makes me think of all the other things that we have to grapple with and maybe 
pretend to get along with our families this week or something like that, which I'm, I'm lucky enough to say that my, I love spending time with my family, if, if you're listening. Sam, what did you think oh, about the gendered, the gendered stuff going on in this film and like the pretense? I mean, I'm used to watching Barbara Stanwyck play these roles and her, her characters are often known for trickery, gold digging, cutthroatery, you know, basically the three things that women need to do to survive in this time period. Right. And, and so the, uh, I mean, this film isn't really intelligent enough to comment on those things. It's intelligent enough to know that they're problems, but only really to use them for entertainment value. And this is in some ways the, the Barbara Stanwyck performance that rings the least true. Uh, because it's, it's, uh, uh, no, I've seen her act before. She doesn't fall for people that quickly. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. No. I, I saw it with my own eyes. They both had like start, you know, like the, I know. you know, like in the monkeys when, uh, yeah. Davey gets the, <laughs> the little hearts in his eyes. Yeah. I felt, oh, Jeffy. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny to me because, you know, she does not know what to do with a baby. They, oh, oh, not at all. I don't even know if we mentioned she, she like. Has borrows a baby to like make these people think she has a, a kid as well. She borrows two different babies. Yeah, they don't. They're different. They're one's like a little girl with dark hair, and the other one's like a little boy that's blonde and can talk. And he and can, can talk. talk. <laughs> and like it's just this whole thing. Basically, these neighborhood women are leaving their their babies with the I guess the head like cook or housekeeper at this farm to like watch while they have to go off to work and she's just like okay this is my baby for the day <laughs> yeah this film is also not going to touch this with a 10-foot pole basically the 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 bag of dicks farm owner farmhouse mm-hmm. owner mm-hmm. is a landlord oh yeah, yeah basically i mean if not in deed uh pun then in tradition yeah right for sure. he is the he is the lordly local person and the reason these moms have to leave their children with him is they have to work in the factory at christmas and this film does not want to interact with that at all well it doesn't but it is interesting because it is in 1945 that it has this like like the factory they're working in is a war effort and so this film is trying to like also be like, oh, this is patriotic what yeah. they're doing, right? They're sacrificing yeah. their Christmas. To, but they're not willing to engage with like, yeah. the economics sure of that. I'm sure they did not have much of a choice. Right. <laughs> and so it is It is very interesting, especially if you compare those women to Barbara Stanwyck's character, who is not... Her most patriotic thing that she does in this film is falling in love with a war hero. I do love the decadent descriptions of food from her column, yeah. even though she can't cook. And from Felix, right? Felix talks about food a lot. And from Jefferson because of his trauma about food because he like starved for like, is it 19 days that they say? Yeah. And uh, and so like he has this thing about food too, which I think is really interesting. I think he almost falls in love with her like before. And a version of her that doesn't exist, obviously, even before meeting her because of He's just loving her writing. Yeah, he loves yeah. reading her her column, which again also feels like a gender reversal because those columns are written primarily with women as the audience in mind, but he's like in love with it. Yeah. Yeah, which is very interesting. Uh, how would we feel? You said that this isn't 
really what I said that I don't associate this type of role with Barbara Stanwyck, yeah. and you said this is true as for for you as well. Betty Davis was actually going to play this character and then had to drop out at the last minute. So Betty Davis was actually supposed to be Elizabeth Lane. Do we think she would have been better at this type of character? Nope. No? Why not, not even a little bit. I don't think so either. I, I'm going to spend the next month or so watching more Barbara Stanwyck movies. Yeah, you said and that yesterday that you were like I inspired. Need to, yeah, I need, I'm going to do a little project for myself. Yeah, I think that that's great. We, we are very pro-project yes. here at Monkey. Not at all. <laughs> I also really wanted Felix and Nora to get together. Like, I felt like there was a lot of undercurrents. Like, maybe oh, they do. Yeah. Like, we don't see, like, what happens. I was an enemies to lovers if I ever saw Yeah, them. absolutely. <laughs> Nora is also played by a very prominent character actor, Una O'Connor, who we've also disca- discussed on this podcast. Uh, she is, was especially big with Universal and with Curtis. Um, during his films. That's why I was thinking Universal earlier. Yeah. Uh, she was in The Invisible Man, The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Seahawk, and The Adventures of Robin Hood. She was also in a lot of Billy Wilder's stuff as well. So she generally plays this like crotchety Irish like character acting type stuff, but people loved her and she's really great. But I think she actually gets to lean into the Irishness a little bit more here than yeah. I've seen in previous films as well. She's kind of that like funny conservative but yet really kind like yeah. person yeah but she and felix like they're fighting for control of that kitchen <laughs> and i love it well it's so funny to me and i was saying this while we were watching the movie they never explain to her what's going on or like maybe yeah. they do off screen <laughs> and it just makes it funnier to me that she doesn't know why felix is even there. Yeah, she's just like going along with so it. Doesn't. doesn't she try to quit at one point? She does because she thinks that Elizabeth and John are sleeping together because she sees oh, them go yes. into a room, but they're not. She knows they're not married, yes. and so yes. yeah. So she she she's a good Irish Catholic, and yeah. she's not going to stand for that until they explain what's going on, and then well, they don't explain the whole thing. They just said, "Oh no, we were just like hiding or whatever." Yeah. She's like, "Oh, that's fine." Well, that's <laughs> like, uh, no no problem. That's then. fine. I really just in general enjoyed the joke where like. John and Elizabeth like keep almost getting married to make it official <laughs> so that it's not a lie and the the ju- the like judge has to come back to the house like four different times and they never tell him why they yeah. keep having to delay it and it's fine it's fine <laughs> everything's fine uh the last two things I wanted to say is first of all the love triangle between Elizabeth Jefferson and John is definitely one example of a love triangle I do not want to end in a throuple I think John is incredibly boring oh those exist yes those do exist John is incredibly boring which is part of the joke of the film yeah everyone thinks he's boring right but like he's one of those people that can't he he can't help himself like he has to like keep talking about Architecture. Architecture. And that's like the only thing he wants to talk about. He keeps talking about the insulation in the house. Who do you think you are? Mike Brady? You can't. You're an architect. If you keep talking about that, it's not going to work. I love toward the end where even Yardley, the like edit, the owner of the the magazine, is like, "Yeah, he's boring." Yeah, <laughs> I know he's boring. We're just keeping him around. Oh, and also that Yardley apparently doesn't know how reproduction works because he's like, <laughs> "Our competitor is about to have a baby in September. Why don't we have a baby first? Like, <laughs> also, how would you know in December that your competitors? 
writer is having a baby in September? Like, did you get pregnant and then announce it the next day? Well, well, you see, so like that doesn't even make sense. Well, okay, so the Great Depression was, you know, not so long before. It's over now, but you know, not so long before. And so during the Great Depression, because you know, um, food costs so much money. The incubation period, most people don't know this, it increased, you see. Oh, and, even, and even though, you know, the depression's over, it still takes a while for it to, you know, go back down to, you know. So, so, so you know, you could know like a year out at this point still. I oh, still so like maybe the people that thought my grandparents had to get married were right. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. uncle uh-huh. was born about like a year after they got married and everyone was like, but the timing was. Yeah, people, people don't know this. People don't know this. No, I still like Elise's idea about putting heat lamps on oh, like, yeah. the belly. Like to Yeah, get if Elizabeth that. got pregnant real quick and they put heat lamps, you could just like incubate it mm-hmm. a Yeah, she bit. could have that baby out by June. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, For absolutely. Sure. This is a terrible conversation. This is. <laughs> the last thing I'll say, though, is that the most Christmas thing that, and we, I think we should do this for every movie. The most Christmas thing that happens in this movie, though, is when Alexander and Jeffrey sneak back down to the kitchen after everyone said goodnight and just keep eating out yes. of the fridge, yep. which is like the most Christmas thing. Like yeah. where you just go back down and you just keep eating stuff. Yep. yep. And Yardley drinks an obscene amount of wine. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that was probably the best thing he did in the movie because yep. he was kind of a jerk. A yeah. All right. So we all approved of this movie. It sounds like would put it on anyone's Christmas list. Yes. I will definitely be rewatching this movie and raving about it to all to all to all inside i actually told my parents after about it and my mom was like oh yeah i've seen that and i will also point out that uh barbara stanwyck is in a second christmas movie that reunites her or actually just unites her i think it actually happens first uh a movie called remember the night and it is directed by preston sturgis and it is basically a da escorts a shoplifter home for the holidays. This sounds wonderful. And they fall in love. I'm like, Ofs. all about this. She's also in Meet John Doe, which is another Christmas movie I've yes. seen. Which is definitely super lighthearted. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you've all seen It's a Wonderful Life. Itself a super lighthearted film. I've actually never seen It's a Wonderful Life. It is a wonderful movie. <laughs> it's a I... true story. It lives up to the hype. So, I also think I am clouded by my mom for some reason hating it so i just it's never been on in our house but really, how but how will you know what zuzu's pedals are if you don't watch it's a wonderful life that's a good point it's a great cultural reference zuzu's pedals how will you know what happens every time a bell rings because i saw a commercial with that in it that's like the dumbest how, how will you know what zuzu's pedals are <laughs> okay you have a good point there Next, we should talk about what makes something a Christmas film, because this is a point of contention for a lot of people. Zuzu's Petals. So (laughs) many people have argued about films that are Christmas films, films that feature Christmas as part of their setting, Christmas-adjacent films. People have all sorts of arguments, which, of course, are summed up with the question, is Die Hard a Christmas film? I think we should talk about Die Hard, but some of the other movies that I feel like are in contention for this is Batman Returns, which also features Christmas pretty prominently, and Nightmare Before Christmas, which is another film that people are like, is this a Halloween film or is it a Christmas film? So 
what makes something a Christmas film? Should we distinguish between Christmas films and Christmas adjacent films? Elise, we'll ask, we'll turn to you first. Okay, so for me, a Christmas film is something that's either set at Christmas, it's Christmas time, it could just be seasonal um, or leading up to Christmas. I don't think I'm as stringent on this as other people are. It doesn't really matter to me. Christmas adjacent film to me would be something you just watch around Christmas time. Like it doesn't have to be related to Christmas. Gotcha. But it could be just like your tradition, which I think you wanted to get into a little bit later on like Christmas, uh, movies we watch around Christmas right. in general. So what that makes me think of is like how I met your mother when Marshall and Lily watch Predator every Valentine's yes. Day because that's like yes. their tradition. Oh, that's nice. So it would be like like for me it would be like the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, which actually my friends and I are watching. We're planning to watch all of them the day after Christmas. We call it Slugfest. We usually have seven meals. Some of the meals are just drinks to give you a little intro into like what that kind of vibe is. <laughs> yeah. It's usually one of those, I got drunk and then sobered up and then, you know, went home. And then got drunk again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like, just movies that you would watch around Christmas, whether they're not, whether they're Christmas related or not. But I do think a Christmas movie happens around Christmas. I just think I have a real minimal definition for that. Sam, what do you, what are you, what is your thoughts on the, these questions? All right. So, I mean, the thing about it is, is I, I do really like that answer of, if it was another holiday, would it work? So, for example... We were told this by a bartender once. Yes, and, and he was right, despite the fact that he is an alum of the University of Florida, which usually, <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't trust people. He, it was a good point, though. It was a good point, which is, you know, again, if you if you move it to a different time of year, to a different holiday, will it work? Why would John McClain fly across the country for an Easter party, a July the 4th party. What if his estranged wife was getting an award at her job? Yes, but that's not a holiday. That's just a different instance, right? And so, it, and so, for example, if you think about it, does Han Solo being put in carbonite hit differently if it's not Christmas? <laughs> I mean, it's tragic, but it's super tragic. Because they admitted they loved each other at Christmas. We know. I'm sorry. And, and in the Star Wars universe, it's not Christmas. It's Life Day or whatever. <laughs> and, and we know that Chewbacca. And, you know, Chewbacca is Han Solo's best friend. Right? They are family. Yes. Right? That's what the life debt is. And, uh, and of course, we've had that prequel movie that I think we're going to talk about where they actually establish how that life debt comes into play. But anyway... But, yeah. <laughs> but you know that you know that Chewbacca, you know, really feels that that tradition and sort of loses best friend. I mean, it's just and that's why Empire Strikes Back is a Christmas film. What? I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> OK, well, let me ask you, is Die Hard a Christmas film? Of course it is. A hundred percent. Is Batman Returns a Christmas film? No. Why not? That is a negative ghostwriter. Why not? Because it has fuck all to do with Christmas. But it's set during Christmas, like Die Hard is set during Christmas. Okay, first of all, let me ask you. I don't think they're going to do an look, Easter okay, Day parade. Okay, okay, okay. The Penguin's running for office, correct? Yes. When do elections happen? 
November. They do not happen at Christmas. I see. This is wrong well, for several Gotham, reasons. Maybe that's why Gotham's political situation's all fucked up is because they don't do their elections okay. at the right time of okay. year. <laughs> Batman Returns is not a Christmas film. It is a Tim Burton fever dream. I see. The Nightmare Before Christmas, not directed by Tim Burton, True. is a Christmas film because it's about Christmas. It does literally is about Christmas after Halloween. Like right. Halloween is well, ending and, at the beginning and, but of the film. But then we go back to the idea that some people think the Christmas season starts the minute after Halloween. And so for those people, special as they are. Well, I mean, it's about Jack Skellington realizing there's more holidays in the year than just Halloween, right? Because he's like, the rest right. of the year is so boring. And, and to be very clear, the best scene in The Nightmare Before Christmas involves the Easter Bunny. That's true. <laughs> but it's not about Easter. It's about the spirit of Christmas. I see. I have... A why not both approach to Nightmare Before Christmas in that it's both a Christmas and a Halloween movie to me. Oh yeah, totally. Um, I will say that in some countries that are above us, their Thanksgiving is before um, Halloween. So yes. I do understand when they start Christmas the second after Halloween. Ends. It is. It is like um, it, it's like a uh, a boxing match. It's it's their Thanksgiving is the undercard. Yeah. And ours is the main event. What about Edward that's Scissorhands? Not. <laughs> Another Tim Burton film that no. takes that's place in Christmas. Tim, winter Tim Burton movie. Fever Dream. I Tim. think it's a. I would say it's a winter film, not a Christmas film. What about Iron Man Three? No. No. Also takes place at Christmas. Come on. Yeah, I don't think that that is either. Okay. I, these are all fascinating answers. But the to thing me. with Die Hard specifically is that it's a Christmas party that they're having, and that is what. Yeah, I don't really feel like people, I mean, I guess they do have like 4th of July cookouts and stuff, but usually those parties aren't in the office. Nope. So it does make sense that this is a very like specific kind of party. A holiday party, I mean, my company has a holiday party every year. Um, We don't specifically call it a Christmas party, A, because the owners are Jewish, and B, because you don't do that anymore in 2022, I guess. You just call it a holiday party. Which is not something I'm complaining about. But I do think it makes sense in the 80s to have had a Christmas party in the office. Right, plus he and his wife are estranged. So he's coming in to see his children. Yes. And so, like, he wouldn't be doing that for, like, the 4th of July. He's just kind of meeting her there because she'll be there. And it's probably better that they see each other before he sees the children. Right. So this all makes sense to me. Plus, like you said, this is also a Christmas movie. This is also a movie that a lot of people watch at Christmas. Yeah, I that's yeah. A, that's a movie I always watch every December. So. so that makes sense. So there is one problem with Die Hard as a Christmas movie. As you know, we are recording this on November twenty seventh. Right. Yesterday, November twenty sixth, the University of Southern California college football team played Notre Dame. Right. The same two teams who are playing each other in Die Hard. Oh, really? There is no reason these two teams would be playing at this time of year. Like, it's a mistake. Or, this is a Christmas party happening at Thanksgiving. It could be. It could be. Maybe this is a firm that takes a couple weeks off. There is, yes. There is also the possibility that USC and Notre Dame have both had really shitty seasons. (laughs) <laughs> and have been in a giant confluence of events, been picked for one of the second, there really were only two tiers back then. There's like three or four now. But it's just, it's it's interesting that that, that game makes no sense there. So um, 
this could be, uh, but the point is like it, it has to be set there. It makes more sense for a football game to happen around this time than uh, a municipal election. Right. I understand. I find all these evaluations of these films interesting, and I hope our listeners also give me, us evaluations of these films. What do you think a Christmas movie is or a Christmas-adjacent movie? Do you have strong feelings about Die Hard? Would like to know. Oh, 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 there's another reason why it's, it's, a, um, it's a Christmas movie. Holly's workmate, the one who gets murdered yes. for being an asshole. Um, I know his yeah, name. Yeah, the point is... Hans, Bubby. Yeah, guy. he was definitely celebrating a white Christmas. Oh, he definitely hey! was. Hey, that's yeah. it. We can move on. I'm done. All right, that well, on that note, uh, we are going to go to Elise's... Speaking of cocaine. We are going to go to Elise's... Excuse me. <laughs> no, not you, the Muppets. Come on. I'm just are you telling me animals never been on cocaine? Oh, animal is. Are you telling under. me? No, actually, I think animal straight edge. I think he's just like that. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I don't it, think we want to see him. You know what, Tessa? You're probably not wrong. Actually, yeah. I feel like that tracks. Okay, who is the Muppet that's most likely to have a, a giant cocaine addiction? I feel like the band is too mellow for them. Like they're like no, they're all on weed. Yeah, sure, percent. Sure, they're like smoking. Yeah, yeah, bag. yeah. Okay. I that have, makes sense. I have it. I have it, and I don't. Scooter. Scooter. I like that you had to lean forward to the mic. Wow. He has a lot going on. I feel like he is just like a logistics person that needs to get all this stuff done and like doesn't have enough time, and so he has to like. Okay. He needs a little help. I can see that. I don't think he's that, not in this movie. I just. <laughs> I don't think it. that Rizzo has a drug problem, no. but I definitely think he gets down. Yeah. Like. He's from New Jersey. At parties. So. Yeah, as, as is established in this film. <laughs> okay, so, are you ready? Beaker. Yeah, Beaker I could see also. <laughs> Otherwise, would we have gotten Ode to Joy? Like, I feel like that would not have happened without some some drug. Some some chemical influence. So, as you can guess, we watched A Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> from that, you can guess from we that. watched A Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> Which was Elise's pick for this podcast episode. Elise, why did you pick this film? Because I'd never seen it, and I love the Muppets. It's kind of surprising to me that you had never seen it. Yes. I had... You know what it is? I always loved the Muppets, and I didn't watch a lot of Muppet movies. I just watched the Muppets Take Manhattan over and over and over again, and just... I think because it was Christmas-related, I just had this block. There was a very long time. Well, I should, you know, as you said earlier, I'm Jewish. And I'm also an atheist Jewish person. So I religion is just not something that I'm into. But I think that for a long time, anything that had to do with any holiday of any religion, I was like, no, thank you. And it's only recently. I mean, I always watch Die Hard, but like you can watch Die Hard even if you're not into Christmas. But I don't think that's a comment on whether it's a Christmas movie so we did not backtrack there. Um, so I just was not interested. And that's fair. I was also surprised, although from what you just said, I should not have been surprised, that you had not seen a Christmas Carol movie or yeah. read the story yeah. by Charles Dickens that it's based on. So yeah. you went into this, like, not just blind knew- of it as a movie, but you didn't know really the plot of what was going to happen. I knew that it was going to be you know, past, present, and future. It's possible I saw Christmas Carol play at some point growing up, 
that so it's like I knew a little bit but I really it's like when you're going to log an old movie on Letterboxd and you don't remember if you saw it but you might have that's kind of where I am with this I might have seen an iteration of it but I really did not remember right I knew it would be like a reflection of like past present and future but I didn't remember any like the specifics of what happened. Yeah. Like so, I knew that Tiny Tim was a character in something I had not seen, but I did not know Tiny Tim was a character in this until gotcha. he showed up. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot about the story, not just because there's been so many adaptations, but because Dickens was so famous in his lifetime, specifically for this story, right. that I feel like there's a lot of uh, cultural osmosis when it comes yes, to like sure. what this story is mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this adaptation for people who perhaps haven't seen it. So it's really fun whenever the Muppets do an iteration of something because, and you, we all know that meme, like, okay, if we were going to do Lord of the Rings, there would, you know, what, who would stay a human actor and who would all the Muppets play? We all decided Vigo would stay human. Yes. And Gandalf too, I think. I think it was actually Boromir. Oh yes. We need Sean Bean in this. But, so, this basically is the epitome of that. We have Michael Caine as um, Ebenezer Scrooge, the great Gonzo as Charles Dickens. This gets very meta. Yeah. Kermit as Bob Cratchit, Miss Piggy as Emily Cratchit, Fozzie the Bear as Fozzie Wig, and Rizzo the the Rat playing himself and co-narrating the story (laughs) with the great Gonzo as Charles Dickens. Um, why have one narrator for a film when you could have two in Gonzo and Rizzo? I mean, it's always the correct choice to I mean, put those why, two together. Yeah, exactly. And I think this movie actually convinced me even more that they are a great comedic pairing. Like, yeah. I knew that before, and I had seen this film before, but watching it again, I was like, yes. Like, yeah. this was the right decision to put them two together. And Rizzo is one of my favorite Muppets, so I just feel like it was... It, this film really worked for me. Um, Michael Caine is, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's this, like, businessman who hates Christmas. He's mean to everyone. He's trying to make... He, at first, offers Kermit a half hour off on Christmas. And Kermit, as Bob Cratchit, is like... I'm really glad he stood up for himself and was like, it's common to give the whole day (laughs) um and so michael Caine goes i don't know if he went to bed already but basically he finds out that he is going to have to look at his history to find out why he sucks and why he hates christmas so much and that he needs to change i really love muppet humor and that anything that's going to go wrong will go wrong yeah (laughs) Um, and like it's all phys- very physical comedy. There's very amusing where when he finds out that he's going to have to go through all of these parts of his life, he's like, can't we all get it over with at once? Which actually sounds extremely overwhelming. Everything, everywhere, all but at I once. But I feel like that was Ooh. the most relatable thing that he says. Oh, where yeah. Like yeah. the ghosts, Jacob and Robert Marley, uh, basically tell him that he's going to be haunted by these three ghosts. And he's like, can't I just get it over? Yeah. That, I felt that. I was like, yeah, that's something I would yeah. say. I'm I like, really, just get it all over with. I do think that A Christmas Carol, besides for me, is a story that most people know. So I don't know that I have to go through every little bit of what happened. But we have the, um, the ghosts of 
Christmas past was this like little child spirit thing that I found extremely creepy. Like it just really, I don't know why. I think dolls just creep me out and it looked very doll-like. Um, so he goes back and he sees his childhood and his his best friends. And it's just funny to me because I can't even imagine Ebenezer Scrooge having a friend. So the fact that he like apparently had friends as a child is weird. And I don't know <laughs> that they, but I think, um, and then he meets, was it Pearl was her name? That girl? Belle. Belle. I'm really, was Pearl in something? Maybe you're thinking about the movie Pearl that just came out, which <laughs> oh, is definitely that, not a Christmas That's movie. weird. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, then he meets Belle who, it's really obvious that he, over the course of their relationship, he starts to neglect her and focus more on his work. And she breaks up with him, and he knows that it's coming from the beginning of the scene. And in Christmas, Christmas Present is like this very jolly, who I think should have a Scottish accent, Muppet, showing him around at how happy everyone is that he's not around and they're all making fun of him and... Talking about him and... Everybody has family except for him. Yeah. And he gets a little bit of a glimpse into Bob Cratchit's family. And that's where he sees that they have two daughters and two sons. And they have a son that is coughing and obviously is sickly. And... I love that the Cratchit's boys are frogs and that the girls are pigs. Pigs. Yeah. Yeah. I found that to be really and that the the daughters Bettina and because they're like yelling at her that Bettina and Belinda they're like yelling yeah. at her that she gets them confused but they're like <laughs> little Miss Piggies and they do the like little mannerisms yeah and they were that was cute. really cute and Tiny Tim is just their whole family is really cute and he sees how meager their feast is and is just like and they're still thankful for it and it's just not something that Scrooge is experience in his life because he's always wanted more and to be the most successful and then we get to the future or sorry christmas is yet to come yeah never the actual terminology and it's basically someone that looks like death um, without a face and he sees people celebrating and joking around when he dies and he i mean you know it as the audience that it's probably about him Mm-hmm. But he sees that they're all celebrating. And he's like, who's this person that they're excited about? And it's him. And I think that really turns him around. But it really was, I don't know, this is something you might want to chat about. But, like, when he finds out that Tiny Tim died and he just is crying. And it's a lot. But it also feels very, you know, using a disabled person to make someone feel better. And that is not the best Tiny Tim is such an interesting character because he is like the progenitor of like the inspirational disabled person in literature and film because, you know, he's this tiny child who is very innocent. Like he's, you know, he's not a troublemaker. He like says these things that are very prescient and very like spiritual and, you know, God bless us, everyone. And like, the whole point of him as a character is to inspire Scrooge to be a better person. And the whole point of his character is the tragedy of him dying. Right. Um, And he did not die, you know, because Scrooge saved him and that's supposed to make Scrooge look like this good person. At the end end of the movie, he gives Bob Cratchit a raise and he takes, 
care and he, he feeds them and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and but on the other hand, one of the most devastating lines in the film, well, in any adaptation that does this correctly, is the ghost of Christmas present throwing Scrooge's lines back at him right. when Scrooge, because Scrooge at the beginning says they better die and decrease the surplus population about people who are poor or disabled. Right, right, right. And then when he sees Tiny Tim and he says, like, you know, oh, is he going to die? You know, he says, well, he better do it then and decrease the surplus popu- population, which is like a devastating line. The only one that's more devastating is one that's not in this adaptation where the ghost of Christmas present repeats some of his other lines to him later when he like shows him he shows him these two children called ignorance and want and he says these are mankind's children and when when scrooge says like do they is there no place they can go and he says are there no prisons are there no workhouses right because he does say yeah he does say that line in this movie that poor people should just be locked up right basically so there is this really so again tiny tim you know, I have mixed feelings for the yeah. most part. I think he's a plot device more than a real character. Yeah. Um, but there are some interesting things that kind of surround him, especially when we talk about, like, the anti-capitalism of this film. There are a couple things not really related to the plot that I wanted to call out that I really enjoyed. Janice wearing a bonnet at yes. uh, Fozzie Wiggs' party. <laughs> Dr. It, Teeth and the Electric Mayhem are playing Fozzie Wiggs' party. Yeah, they are. It, this is in the past, and Janice just has this bonnet on, and they're just having a really joyous time, which I liked. I honestly don't remember what happened that caused Rizzo to run away screaming, saying, I'm from New Jersey. He gets attacked by a cat, a uh, Muppet cat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which, like, I'm from New Jersey. So it just was... Very exciting. And I think most importantly, while narrating, Rizzo kissed Gonzo on the nose. It was very sweet. And it was like so gentle and... Especially because he had just made Gonzo speechless by doing something very Rizzo-like. Yeah. It was a very funny and sweet moment. Yeah, I really loved that. And there was a scene at Fozzywigs where animals said the words thank you. Which just felt so out of character <laughs> to me. And I was just like, what is happening here? I just like that the band always plays at animal's pace. Like, yeah. like Animal hold, hold, manages to hold himself to a slow pace for like five minutes and then just like, like picks it up. And they're like, all right, we're picking up the pace. Yeah. Sam, what did you think about this movie? Because you had never seen it either. Well, it is no Mickey's Christmas Carol, but then I don't know what is. It's longer. That's true. Uh, the the this came out in ninety uh, two. Yes. Uh, so it was really too late for me to have it become a childhood favorite. Again, that goes to Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is a Christmas Carol but make it Disney. Right. right. Hi, Disney wasn't always the owner of the Muppets. Let's make yeah. that clear. <laughs> yes. I I understand. I mean, it was good. It was it was Muppets, but it was Christmas Carol. I mean, the the additions of Rizzo and Gonzo as the narrator are clearly the best parts. I I think the the thing that I've been thinking about a Christmas Carol since we watched it was, uh, and I keep recommending this as as a monkey. I really think we ought to talk about it someday. Is that you can kind of create your own pop culture divine comedy. Yeah. This is like the Inferno version, right? Right. This is, he goes to hell, 
because having to examine his life is hell. Is hell. Yeah. Um, and of course, paradise is it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Right. The the understanding that what he has done, you know, it 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 there. These are two movies where people are forced to look back on their lives by some sort of heavenly ish entity, right? And or um, at least otherworldly. And so Scrooge is the 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 you fucked up version of this. Right. George Bailey is you are the best person alive version of this. Uh, the one in the middle actually comes from one of our MVPs from Noir Vember, Albert Brooks. Oh. The scariest man in drive once wrote and directed a movie that fits right in the middle. It's the purgatory version of this, right? Uh, it's called Defending Your Life. I've heard of that, but I have not seen it. Yeah, it, it uh, co-stars Meryl Streep. Hmm. That may have been my first Meryl movie, as a matter of fact. And it's about... So it it, it predates The Good Place. Okay. Uh, instead of a point system, when you die, you go to a place called Judgment City. You are appointed an attorney, and you go to court. Interesting. And, and you are prosecuted. We should definitely be watching Yeah, this. I was about to say, this sounds and, awesome. And... Um, you're prosecuted over the course of a week. Now, over the week, so Judgment City is apparently, it's it's heaven, basically. He, he, it's Albert Brooks, so I mean, he's doing a lot to try to make this as non, not even non-denominational, but non-religious as possible, yeah. and he's talked about this. But it is what you think heaven would be. It, up to and including uh, Shirley MacLaine basically being like the activities director. <laughs> um, which that. is kind of a joke, because, you know, she was really big into... Like reincarnation, right? Like yeah, I think that film does a really. It, it Albert Brooks is really smart in this movie because the thing that's going to keep you out of heaven, the thing that is going to cause you to be reincarnated and try again, is fear. And so, if you think about the fact that George Bailey did all the kind things that he did for people, despite his fear of never getting to get out of that town, she never does. Uh, he's able to defeat that fear, right? Whereas Scrooge is a victim of his own fear. Right. And is ultimately responsible. I mean, that's the point. Uh, what what Albert Brooks talks about in Defending Your Life is the fact that fear is like the most natural thing humans can face, but you are responsible for how you deal with that fear. Well, and And so Scrooge gets a little help. Well, what I love about... Dickens and his version of hell is that it's not God punishing you for doing something wrong. It's this like state where you have to wander the earth like the like Jacob Marley or Jacob and Robert Marley in this case where he has to wander the earth and he's covered in chains. And I love the line where he says, "I, I made these chains link by link with my own hands. And this idea that like you are responsible Mm -hmm. like for what you do and like doing these things, you are making your own like chains basically. And what he's really tortured by is that he can't help anymore. It's too late. He just has to wander and see the misery of the world and he can't do anything about it. But he decides to help old buddy Scrooge. Right. And say like, you're going to be tortured by your life until you like, you know, fix yourself. And so I actually remember saying when we finished this film, I kind of want to watch It's a Wonderful Life now because I feel like Scrooge after the events of A Christmas Carol becomes more like George Bailey, 
where he's trying, because he's a landlord, right, at the beginning. Right. Like, one of the big things that gets mentioned in this film, because we actually see the guy coming in and trying to say, like, oh, I'll pay my mortgage after Christmas, and he, like, throws him out, right? Um, in the in the book, one of the people celebrating the fact that he's died in Christmas to come is this person who's like, oh, I don't have to pay my mortgage. By the time they figure out who I should be paying it to, like, we'll be able to actually pay it by then. And so there is this idea that he's a horrible landlord and that he's making all this money off of people's misery. But then the idea is that after this, he becomes like more of a community, like involved in the community. And he's actually able to help people instead of like profiting off of them. So there is this really interesting anti-capitalism, which is funny because when the book came out, that was the beginning of capitalism. That was like the industrial revolution. So it is interesting that those themes have continued even to something that was made in the 90s. Yeah. The other thing, too, about this one is it, you know, it's the Muppets, so it's going to be fun, but it's also pretty faithful. Uh, It is, yeah. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe was most likely right, and we'll get into this more in a moment. The, The best, the ultimate form of fiction is the one that you can read in one sitting. Mm-hmm. and uh, Hitchcock knew this as a director, is that it is very difficult to adapt a longer work of fiction. You know, this movie's an hour and 25 minutes long. It is pretty much a, a very faithful adaptation of a novella. Um, you know, Mickey's Christmas Carol is a short. It's it's better part of half an hour long. It leaves out some things, like, if I recall correctly... It leaves out the scene where they're picking over his possessions after he dies. Right. Um, which I guess such a creepy Disney, Muppet, Disney, the spider Muppet. Yeah, like, yeah. Disney decided that was too much of a, a thing for children, but the Muppets thought it was fine. Well, the Muppets make a joke out of it, yeah. right? Where they're like, "Is this too much for children?" Nah, it's culture, yeah. which I think is a really um, amazing comment that is relevant today because I we're constantly as a culture just having discussions about and obviously the three of us do not have children but like we're discussing like what's appropriate for kids to learn and not learn and I think it is important for kids to learn that there are shitty things out there um and that things that might have been seen as shitty in the past are not shitty now like there's this that's not related to Christmas Carol, that's related to um, the gays. Like, they can they can learn that gays exist. But, yeah, so I do think that it is interesting. That the Muppets, for me, always went way further than Disney with regard to those kind of things, showing kids what was really out there. Right. But I did like how they ditched us for Ghost of Christmas present. So they were just like, no, this like, or so- Ghost of Christmas yet to come, yeah. I should say. yeah. That Which was actually kind of not, to, I don't mean this in a bad way. The fun part about that is like, it, it it almost is a nod to when they come back. You're like, okay, well, the movie's almost over. Like, yeah. it probably helps parents uh, pace their uh, their movie watching. Hmm. <laughs> I have to say Fozzie Wig's party, Fezzy Wig to Fozzie Wig. Mm-hmm. That was perfect. But I also kind of wanted to go to that party. Yeah, like the Swedish fun. chef was there and like... It looked really fun. It just looked like a fun time. I like that Fozzie Wig was just like not, you know, like Ebenezer kept coming up to him to talk about work and he was just like, it's Christmas. Like, go meet a hot lady. <laughs> yeah, here's this so. hot girl. Like, <laughs> pay, 
well, you know, be with her instead. <laughs> she was the get only, a life. She was the only um eight, like woman in the in that town that was like around the same age as him. So they just and that wasn't a Muppet. It. And that wasn't a Muppet. So <laughs> I mean, Miss Piggy certainly isn't against it in Treasure Island. So yes, that's true. You know, any other thoughts about a Christmas Carol, Muppet or otherwise? Not enough Kermit. Yeah, I will say casting Kermit as Bob Cratchit makes sense. Yeah, I can't imagine him being in a different role. But it's like he's got he's got a scene at the beginning and then we don't see him again until like halfway through the movie. Yeah. This is really Gonzo's movie more than it's Kermit's and movie. And I love Gonzo and yeah. I think Gonzo is in the correct role in the I think all of the Muppets were cast perfectly. Um it just is the story doesn't have that much Bob Cratchit right. in it. Well, and I would say it doesn't have that much Miss Piggy in it either. And I love Miss Piggy. Yeah, for sure. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite lines of hers in this was when Scrooge shows up at the end and he's like trying to pretend that he's like still, you know, miserly yeah. and stuff, but he's like pulling yeah. a prank on them. And he says, I'm going to give you a raise. And Miss Piggy is like, I'll raise you from the pavement. <laughs> yeah. I, I asked Sam later that night, I was like, do you think at this point she has to, when she takes out her earrings to fight someone that she has to ask Kermit to hold them, or does he just like automatically take them from her? I think yeah. he automatically like he knows yeah. like that she's she's about to throw down. And then, of course, the best thing that happened yesterday was Sam at the end of the film <laughs> when they said tiny and tiny Tim, who did live, grew up to be Winston Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed for about five minutes. It was it was the perfect conclusion to that film. Can't, you can't prove he doesn't. You, you can't prove that Tiny Tim did not, in fact, grow up to be Winston Churchill. I mean, if you've seen the first couple of seasons of The Crown, you know that Winston Churchill was in poor health. Not Tiny, but that kid <laughs> might have it. But, but you know, here's the thing. After, uh, after Scrooge picks up the rent and gives, gives uh, uh, Cratchit a raise, uh, you know, Tiny Tim, you know, is is well fed just in time for that growth spurt. Yeah, he gets nourished. Yeah. I yeah. also Tiny becomes a a a ironic moniker in his adolescence. <laughs> I to add to your point, also think that Winston Churchill in The Crown is very Muppet like. So I think it it does make well, sense. Well, John Lithgow's a Muppet. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. That yeah. that I mean, that's just yeah. Which I also think, didn't one of you say Barbara Stanwyck is also a Muppet? I did say Barbara Stanwyck is a Muppet, which is the way those two films are connected, Yeah. matter of fact. But before we talk about the third movie, we do have to talk about our Christmas film staples, because I feel like that's also a big part of Christmas films, is that everybody either grows up with a roster of films that their family watches every year, or every other year, or what have you, and often we pick up other films throughout our lives that we end up watching a lot at Christmas time as well. So we'll start with you, Sam, since we started with Elise last time. What are some staples of your Christmas, both as a child and now? As a child? Well, I mean, as a child, it was Mickey's Christmas Carol. Right. That was... That was the one. That was the one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know your mom loves Elf. She does. That film did not come out while I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> so that let's just now. As you know, my favorite is Love Actually, which we watch every year. Which we watch every year. I've watched Die Hard a lot for many a Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. I don't find myself going back to those every year. I don't know that it's necessary. I think Love Actually is the only one that is 
a necessary watch every year. I, I'm not a huge fan of the Hallmark Netflix Christmas movies. I have a better appreciation for them for what they are after hanging out with you. But Love Actually is my only go-to. I feel like Last Christmas bubbles up into that list, but only because the confluence of that and George Michael's death at Christmas has canonically made everything that George Michael has ever recorded a Christmas song. And even if it wasn't, I feel like George Michael's discography just works at Christmas. Whether or not the song is actually about Christmas or not, right. it like just tonally, tonally it just feels very Christmas-like. Well, I mean, of course, he has one of the most well-known Christmas songs of all time, right? Uh, to begin with. So, I mean, it's it's kind of appropriate for a Christmas movie to be modeled off of that. But you know, of course, again, he died at Christmas. And then that movie, and, and uh, it was something that Emma Thompson wanted to do, and they talked about it before he died. Uh, and you can kind of see this come through in um, uh, Listen Without Prejudice. That's his second solo album. That his his big thing, his big cause, if you will, was was homelessness. And, you know, the reason that he tied that to Christmas and what Emma Thompson really wanted to do was to say that, you know, Christmas is a time that we associate with charity, you know, Thanksgiving as well, sure. But, you know, the idea that it shouldn't just be this this time of year. And that charity is a lot more than just right. throwing money at a problem. Right. So I don't know that it's, I mean, it's a fine movie. I right. Mean, it's, it's There's a lot of Mike, George Michael nostalgia, I think, in right. that movie. Which we haven't even talked about nostalgia as being part of yeah. the Christmas thing. Because I do think a lot of... Christmas movies do bring that, like, childhood. Yep. I mean, because let's be honest, Christmas is never as good as it is when you're, like, five years old. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that time of year is just so magical when you're a kid, and I think that Christmas movies often try to evoke I, that. I think we've just heard what Tessa's childhood Christmases were like. I think we just heard it. Well, whatever. Okay. So, <laughs> Elise, what are your Christmas or holiday film staples? Um, the Family Stone is a movie I usually watch at Christmas. Um, I've never seen it, and I didn't until this episode realize that it was a Christmas movie. Oh. Didn't know. We will be watching that at uh, some point. The, like. the Family Stone is a movie that I get confused with the Kate Winslet Jack Black movie. The, the Holiday. Holiday. Yes. Which I love. That is. I mean, I know that I know the difference between them now because we've watched it twice. Right. But talk about movies that get, God, you know, yeah. like you said with Christmas in Connecticut. Right. I definitely yeah. think those are. Yeah. Yeah, the family. So I think you will like it. Um, it's kind of one of those things where like everyone in it, except for like one person's kind of an asshole, which is fun. We'll just we can discuss that another time. But that is a movie I'm always up for watching. I will always watch whatever the new. Netflix Christmas movie is. Last year we watched, um, was it Love Hard or whatever? What oh that? my God, that was Which horrible. Which we hated. We watched it for Nina Dobrev and we were very excited about it and it was just <laughs> not good at all. But this year we watched Falling for Christmas and I know we talked about it a little bit, but I feel like that is a movie I will rewatch. It was so... Well, you already did rewatch it yeah, with me. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I've watched it twice now. I forgot about that. It happened like... So, so fast. <laughs> so fast. Um, but yeah, like movies like that. I will always, um, if there is a Hallmark movie coming out that people are interested in, I will watch it with friends. 
if someone wants to watch a movie with me, I will watch it with them. So I'm open to all. Yeah, I think the Hallmark and especially Netflix Christmas movies now, because Netflix seems to be the place that's like putting out yeah, the most exactly. every year. Yeah. I feel like they hit a special sweet spot for Elisa and I where it's like a Christmas movie and it's a romance. And mm-hmm. like we just like romance movies in yeah. general. And so like it is kind of that like special intersection yeah. there. Unlike the one on Hulu, was it last year or the year before Happiest Season? Yeah. Which I really had a hard time with that movie. It wasn't good. No. And I, I do get that some folks are not out with their families, but to... Put your partner through all of that nonsense. It's just not I right. just wanted Kristen Stewart to run away with Aubrey Plaza. Oh, like that, that has actually how that movie should have I ended. I think that you are in the yeah. majority. Yeah. The movie, yes. Yeah, the movie, the yes. The movie. That, but yeah, the maybe movie. in general. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just want to go back yeah. really fast to the Family Stone. Oh, yes. And say that was a whole genre of holiday film, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So I just want to say that... The Family Stone reminds me a lot of Home for the Holidays, which is a um, 95 film that Jodie Foster directed. That uh, So Holly Hunter's the star of that film. But what's interesting about it is that RDJ, pre-rehab, pre-rehab Robert Downey Jr. is in that movie. But it's actually a Thanksgiving movie. Is so, that- you could, so you could do yourself a, a Thanksgiving day after... You could do yourself a Thanksgiving double feature of Home so, for the Holidays and Family Stone and just move from one. So was Home for the Holidays like another Meet the Family then? No, she just doesn't want to go home because okay. her family is shit. Okay, so and yeah, they're mean. Family Stone is more like bring the yes. bring the girlfriend home. Ah, gotcha, um, gotcha. And it's like the the girlfriend interacting with a lot of siblings and Diane Keaton as a mom. To, so. Yep. The 90s was a really big time for I Hate My Family. Well, yeah, really. Because you've got yeah. your home alone. You've got your home for the holidays. You've got, I mean, in, you know, into the next decade, you've got Family Stone. You've got... I don't know if Family Stone is a I Hate My Family movie. I, I might disagree with you Once on that again, one. you're really saying a lot about your family. <laughs> I don't think that they Do not have great Christmases, don't have a great family. I see all of this completely differently. So what I'm saying is I don't think the characters in the movie hate their family is all I'm saying. I think they're mean to each other, but I don't think it's like... Yeah. I don't know. In the 90s, a lot of families had to go through therapy, and, and these movies are part of that. What about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Well, but that's the 80s. Yeah, but I'm saying that was also a not the not the traditional family, the parents and the children, but the extended family has a lot of those vibes in it too. Right. Like your extended family coming in is also hell. Right. Yes, but it's like the '80s into the '90s is a shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is that very like white suburban Norman Rockwell, like ah, our family is so we always have the drunk uncle. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, but we love them. And then in the 90s, people like me growing up are like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it is. I don't like it. And so you start to see that reflected in the pop culture. Gotcha. I will. I just want to push on a little bit. The fact that the Family Stone came out a lot later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also like, so it was very white liberal family, but also had like, they had a couple of token characters. There was a gay couple. There was a Jeff character. There was a black character. 
and yeah. one of them was black and gay. So it was like mostly <laughs> intersectionality people. Yeah, so it was mostly like straight white white liberal yeah. family in like a way that's a little obnoxious. A lot obnoxious. So my family always watched It's a Wonderful Life, too. That's probably one of the first Christmas movies I watched. And I actually appreciate it more now than I did when I was a kid. Uh, we also watched a Christmas Carol, the one, the version with the adaptation with Patrick Stewart, which is actually a pretty good adaptation as well. Of course, you've got your, like, like claymation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Little Drummer Boy. And we also watched Little Women, which we're about to talk about quite a bit around Christmas as well. Um, but I will always personally watch Elf, The Holiday, Last Christmas, and A Castle for Christmas, which just came out last, last year, but I'm already obsessed with it. Yeah, we were going to rewatch it the other night, but I yeah. fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've watched it a couple of times already. It's yeah. so great. So those are all films that I will keep watching every year. And like you, I'm very interested in new ones as well. But let's go ahead and talk about Little Women, which was Sam's pick for this, um, which came out in 1994. Again, this was, for me, the definitive Little Women until Greta Gerwig's film came out a couple of years ago. So, Sam, why did you pick this one? And why hadn't you seen it before since it has a lot of your favorite people in it? Because I've never seen it before, <laughs> the answer to your first question. And uh, the answer to your second question is, life is a cold, dark place full of disappointments. <laughs> Next question. Next question. Tell us about this film. Well... And why is it a Christmas film? I agree with you that it is, but I feel like it might have to be said why Little Women is a Christmas film. Because it involves Christmas. A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's at least two Christmases in this movie. Right. Yeah, if not I mean, three. <laughs> that, well, that's the point, is that I would, without, well, with knowing enough about Louisa May Alcott, I, I think there's a deliberate choice to associate family, the idea of family, with the idea of Christmas. The big centering of the the story is that the dad is away at the wars <laughs> and and these women have to band together and be the family in the absence of the father figure and and so she makes Christmas the symbol of family family right. family family <laughs> yes i I think that's it this is this is a diehard Christmas movie. This is a movie that does not survive in the same way if it's taken out of the context of Christmas, as opposed to being deliberately about Christmas. And that makes I sense. Think. And yeah, that's that fine. The, the problem with the 1994 adaptation of Little Women is that there has been another adaptation <laughs> since then. We, we all talked about this afterwards because both Elise and I grew up with this film. I assumed you watched it. Like, this was the version of Little Women that you watched. Yeah, since this film came out, like, I, I own the DVD. I've watched it a million times. Yeah. It was my movie that I always watched Little Women until. Right. And for me, this was my introduction to most of these actors. Right. Like, I knew them from this film before I knew them anywhere else. And so it is interesting that after we all watched it, even Elise and I were like, this suffers from comparison with the Greta Gerwig adaptation that came out in 2019. Right. Why do you think that is? Several reasons. But first, I just want to say that this this happens with adaptations. It, mm -hmm. it, it just does. I've had, in my lifetime, three major adaptations of Hamlet. Right. And I'm not Laurence Olivier's biggest fan ever to begin with. But, like, I would never recommend that version. 
Right. Of, you know, which is like the classic version of Hamlet. Like, I just, I would never tell anybody to watch it because two out of the three major adaptations, again, released in the 90s, are better. Now, unfortunately, the lead character, the lead actor in one of them is Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, yeah. Um, but he makes some really good choices in that film. Uh, that that and this is the problem with with um, Little Women too is that Laurence Olivier does a faithful adaptation of Hamlet. Mel Gibson does a better adaptation that actually makes choices. Famous windbag extraordinaire Kenneth Branagh came up with a version in 1996 where he, ca- he cast every actor alive <laughs> in a four and a half hour adaptation. Which, if you're going to do a faithful adaptation of Hamlet. Don't cut any lines out, folks. It'll be four and a half hours. <laughs> it's worth it, though. Yeah, it's a good Robin adaptation. Williams in a Shakespeare adaptation doing I've solid s- work. I saw that in the theater. I've seen none of the Hamlet. And then the third one is Ethan Hawke in a Baz Luhrmannized version of Hamlet. Right. Not done by Baz Luhrmann. But what if, what if it was a business empire and not a kingdom? It's not good bad you can make bad choices but the point is this happens with adaptations somebody will do it better somebody will try again it may or may not be better if you've seen the 2019 little women you might as well just not watch this one for the following reasons Saoirse Ronan would beat Winona Ryder's Joe March up take her lunch money and throw her in the dumpster (laughs) that's that's just what would happen why, what do you think about Winona Ryder's Joe that doesn't work as well as Saoirse Ronan's Joe? It's Winona Ryder doing In Joe. what way? <laughs> well, if you were alive in the 90s, you know what I'm talking about. It was just Winona Ryder being Winona Ryder, being Joe March. It's just, it's like, it's not it. It's, it's not, this is not that character. Whereas Saoirse Ronan is able to take some of that big ladybird energy and put it into Joe March. I don't buy Winona Ryder as this. I, bu- I buy her as a disaffected Generation Xer in Reality Bites. What's funny is, is that if she'd brought some of that disaffection to Joe March, it probably would have been a yes, better character. but they yeah. weren't interested in that. Uh, right. That's the other well, thing. Well, I think this that is, part of that is it's a product of It's big time. femininity yeah. going on here. And that's the other thing. I mean, I think, I think the most effective person in this movie is Angela Chase. I'm sorry. Claire Danes. <laughs> you know, she's the one who's bringing the most energy to that character. Right. Disaffected, sickly. Wishes she could. Wishes she could be a little better at what everybody else is doing, but just I can't figure it out. Lead. I love her line read of "I never wanted to go anywhere, yeah. but I never liked being left behind." Yeah. Like it's such a good line read by her. It really is good. I, you know, one of the other things about this film is we've talked about how Greta Gerwig manages to take. Little Women, as we know it, is actually two books that were glued together at some point. They were published separately. Right. Yeah. I like, mean, they, yeah. like we think of Little Women as one book. It is not. It is two books. And this, both adaptations give us both books. There is a time lapse between the two. Greta Gerwig manages to navigate that so she doesn't have to do what happens in the 94 adaptation, which is double cast Amy. And... Kirsten Dunst is, is as they would say here in the South, doing the Lord's work. <laughs> she, she really encapsulates Amy for me. Well, but unlike her role in Interview with a Vampire, 
you won't believe that she's the same age several years later. So they have to make her piece out at the middle of the film and replace her with Samantha Mathis, who is just nothing. Well, and I love Place Samantha Holden. Mathis, but she it's like they told her, like, oh, well, you're fancy and grown up now. Right. So, but it, it really doesn't even feel like the same character at all. Whereas Florence Pugh manages to... She manages Who? to not... Florence Pugh. Who? Miss Flo. Thank you. Manages to play play younger, effectively, but then also take that character and age her up. Like, yes. Like, she's still the same person, but more mature and a little bit more refined, but yeah. she still has the same, like, attitude. Samantha Mathis's Amy was way too quiet and unopinionated. It's not... And I had not... I don't know if I had rewatched this movie after reading the book until the, yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I really saw it yesterday a lot yeah. because it's that's not who Amy is. Which is really funny because, again, I feel like all of these actors play disaffected teenagers mm-hmm. in the 90s. And it feels mm-hmm. like then they were told to do the exact yeah. opposite of that when it would have worked for this film. Because I could see, I can actually see Samantha Mathis playing a good Amy if they right. had like given yeah. her the material and, to do it with. And Amy's my favorite character, so it really is important for me to, for her to be good. It's also really hard to be Miss Flo, though. Like, she's yeah. just doing really good work yes. in Greta Gerwig. I, this is her best performance in the 2019 version. Of Little Women. Florence Pugh? Yep. Yeah. And I think the thing that comes out the most is the scene where Amy burns the pages. Yeah. Right? That scene is, is I, I think that's probably one of the best scenes. I mean, nothing beats the Lori proposal in the 2019. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I mean, we should have just ended the Academy Awards altogether and said, that's it. Nothing else could be better than that. As we all know, that's that's my favorite line read by any actor in any film ever at this point. But but that's also a very powerful scene, and it's it's earned. Uh, you understand why why Amy feels this way, why she feels left out, and why she knows she knows that burning those pages is the thing that's going to hurt hurt Joe. But she also knows that it's wrong. Like and like she, but, as soon as she does it, she's like. Yeah, and so it really struck me in this 1994 version, none of that's there. It's just a thing that happened. It was yeah. very, like, kid doing something stupid. Yeah. yeah. There was nothing there. I mean, it's, it is, it is. if you don't understand that scene, you don't understand what it means for her to snake Lori right. later in the film. Right. You don't understand the fact that Amy has always felt left out and always has this, feeling of inadequacy this feeling of being less than we are told that in the 94 version we see it in the 2019 version and so i well and i feel like it's also just a sister thing like if you have a sister or even like you have a family with multiple girls in it there's usually this like weird relationship at certain times of life where you like fight all the time or you i have physically injured my sister yeah like there's just this very strange like in like you said like insecurity slash Mm -hmm. like i don't even know how to describe it but for me like seeing the relationship between the two of them like you said in the 90s version you can read into it but Mm -hmm. you actually see it in the dynamic between those two characters in greta gerwig's version 
this is a move that sometimes gets made. I'm really talking more about another movie than this movie to understand it by comparison. I just, and, and then after seeing Timothy Chalamet, who's an actor, I don't really care much about one way or the other, but understanding that that's Laurie. Yeah. That is Laurie. I don't believe that the hero that Massachusetts needs <laughs> is, is very good. I mean, you know, Christian Bale he's played. He's cute. That was the whole point. He's a dude. Yeah. yeah. We were he, just having crushes on him. That was what the whole thing was about. That's yeah. it. But, but you understand. I think the, I, I think what I really liked about Timothy Chalamet and Saoirse Ronan together is that the, the true tragedy of this is that they are kind of made for each other. And, and, but she can't do it. Louisa May Alcott would like hate you right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I disagree with, I'm with a Louisa May Alcott on this. So Louisa May Alcott, in one of the funniest things I've ever read, because as we talked about, she was all about making that money because she had yeah. her whole family to support basically, um, because they were all a bunch of transcendental hippies living out yeah. in the wilderness and no one was going to pay for stuff except for her. Yeah. Um, she wrote, I'm trying to remember what the name of the book is. It's called like, my cousin Rose or something like that. She actually asks people at the end of that book about Joe and Lori not ending up together because that was the thing is when she published the next book, Good Wives, which is the second part of Little Women, mm -hmm. people wrote her hate mail about Joe and Lori not getting ending up together. And so finally she's like, fine. And she actually says that she's like, after people complained about another book that I wrote, like she breaks the narrator mm -hmm. and goes meta in this book. And it's like, because people were mad about this other couple that didn't get together. I'm just going to put every character that you mm -hmm. think should be together together from now on, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't make sense. Now here's the end of this book. Like it's just <laughs> this really like passive aggressive, like monologue. And I just think that that's really funny. But part of it's because Lori is based on a real person and Joe is based on her. And so for her, these two characters didn't end up together because they didn't end up together. Yep. Um, but maybe that's just a flaw of the author. I think Lori's a creepy character. I always have. Um, I think Elise brought it up that Timothy Chalamet manages to maybe do this a little bit better than, uh, than Christian Bale does. Yeah, there was... I mean, I, it's so funny because I had not thought about Lori being that creepy, but the, watching this movie again yesterday, really, and I think that this is honestly due to the fact that I've been watching so many movies the last few years, like, and analyzing them and thinking about them in different ways than when I was younger and I would just put a movie on and be like, that boy is cute, you know? He is so creepy, and I didn't occur to me before yesterday. He has that line where he's like, I will always be mad at, like, whoever marries any of you. And it's just, it's so gross. Yeah, like, it's not him as a child that's creepy. Because, like, the whole point is he's, like, a lonely kid yeah, that, like, wants, wants a family. family. And the March sisters are cool. Like, I want to be friends with yeah. the March sisters. Like, and they clearly love him as a brother, and they're, like... Right. His grandfather loves the girls and their mother loves Lord. Like it's they are basically a fa become a family right. whether it's legal or not. Right. But the problem is is that he's not content with that relationship. Like he wants to like legally be part of the family. And yeah. the only way he can see doing that is by marrying one of them. And it's like, well, Meg's out cuz she's like older and is married to his tutor or his yeah. ex-tutor. And, like, Joe is the one that he has the most in common with. They're probably closest in age. Closest also. in age. Beth is too sick, which 
I hate saying that, but that is literally the attitude we get from both the book and the film is that Beth is too sick to be like a viable candidate. Yes. And then Amy's too young, but it's almost like when Joe says no and Amy becomes old enough, he's like, well, this is my way in. So the point about Joe and Lori is in this 94 version, it is really supposed to be this straight up literal interpretation. Any port in the March storm is going to work for Lori. Like, it doesn't matter which one. And that's a very surface-level reading of the women. And it's fine as far as it goes. Like, I mean, the facial hair on Christian Bale alone lets you know that this guy isn't really cool. <laughs> and neither is the professor either, by the way. He's not. He's like, my books are so much cooler than yours. Right. And I don't like Louisa May Alcott as well as I do Jane Austen. But... There is a little bit of, you know, as you pointed out, Tessa, there is a sneering at the, at the, not the reader. It's bad to condescend to your reader, but she is definitely condescending toward the time in which she lives. And Greta Gerwig, I think, is, as somebody who's a, a, just not very much younger than me, kind of interprets this a different way. And, and basically says, I think, what Gerwig would argue is there's something to this in, in the original story is that we are supposed to see these two people as very compatible. The point is Joe cannot be compatible. Mm -hmm. That's it, it's, it's, they are meant to be together, but it cannot happen. And that is, that is a story that is a narrative. People my age are very, very invested in. And I mean that's that's just the thing. It's a it's a period in time. It's a it's a um, it's ironic because in the '90s it was a huge thing, but in this '94 Little Women they weren't doing it. But what Greta Gerwig is doing, I think, is showing, you know, in that scene, the proposal scene, uh, what Saoirse Ronan is doing really well is saying, "I know this is supposed to be what happens, and that's why I'm asking you not to do it, because if you don't do it." It's never happened, and I've never had to say no. And we can always just live in a fantasy land where it is the thing that's going to happen. Whereas in this 94 version, they make a pass at that. But it really just, it plays completely differently. It doesn't land in that same way. It's, it's very simplistic. It's just, oh, I can't be with somebody and be happy. Suck it. Right. And he leaves. There's so much more being communicated in that 2019 version. And I think that is the ultimate way to describe these two movies. It's not that there's anything wrong with the 94 version, but there isn't much right with it either. Once you've seen the right version, which is right. what I think happening here. And I mean, you can talk about that in terms of casting. Is there anything wrong with Susan Sarandon? No. Is there anything wrong with, you know, the, you know, Gabriel Byrne? No. They are not Laura Dern and Bob Odenkirk. Who are, who are doing better work in the 29th, because they're just thinking about the roles in a more nuanced way. And Little Women, much beloved classic that the youngins read, and you don't really do a lot of thought with it, because when you're younger, you're much likely to take things on face value. This is the adaptation that you would see as a, a child. I've read the book, now I want to see the movie. The, the Greta Gerwig version is the one that has more the the nuance to it. The version that you'll come back to and go, oh, yeah, there was a whole lot more going on there. I mean, the, the 2019 version is 20 minutes longer. 
but it manages to do much more than 20 more minutes worth of film. There's a lot more going on in the film. It's much better. Uh, it has a lot more to communicate. There's nothing wrong with this version, the 94 version. I'm glad I finally saw it. Wish I had seen it before 2019. The thing that really gets me too is, I, you remember when the film ended and I said, that's it, we don't get to see the setting up of it. We don't get to see the end of the, the 2019 version of Little Women shows the setting up of the school right. and what life is going to look like. We don't get that in the 94 because the 94 is supposed to end on a happy note. It's a comedy. It ends right. with people getting together. Yeah. yeah, and the thing about it is, is love stories where two people end up together and it's really just the best case scenario is not a good love story. Right. It is a Jane Austen love story, though. It's like, well, they got married because they had to. It'll probably work out. I don't know. Goodbye. I feel like I feel like a modern version of this would end with, like, the last scene in The Graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's very much how yeah. the 2019 version ends. Well, yeah. kind of. I also think the 2019 version is much more interested in the economics of what's yeah. happening in the film, like the actual money question. Right. Um, which is another reason that I think Joe and Lori, or yeah, Joe and Lori don't work, but Amy and Lori do, is because Amy is actually much more aware of money as a concept than anyone else in that family, right. and it it is interesting that even because you said this is the more faithful adaptation, but I don't think that that's supposed to imply that Greta Gerwig's adaptation isn't faithful. It is actually incredibly faithful, no. but it has more of a point of view on these interactions than this movie. Right. I, it's like, uh, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, is that Laurence Olivier's Hamlet is a very faithful adaptation right. of Hamlet. But Mel Gibson and Kenneth Branagh figured out how to show that play with a lot more of what's actually going on in the film. Right. And shows you that there are things that are up for interpretation. And there are things that, that are there as possibilities. I will say, and I, I know you put this note in here, Elise, that the scene where she cuts her hair and Kristen Dunst says, you're one beauty, was like my favorite part as a child. <laughs> Which is really funny because I don't know if before yesterday I'd ever watched this movie with the captions on. And I always thought she, it was like your like apostrophe R-E. And so she was saying, you are one beauty. And then you ruined it by cutting your hair. But yeah. she's literally saying your hair was your only was beauty. Was your only beauty. So it really was funny to me to revisit that and actually read what had been said. <laughs> All right. So maybe this will not be on our Christmas staple list much longer, but I think that that means that Greta Gerwig's version might be. I might watch. I might download that version to watch, like, at the airport. At now. the airport, I, I yeah. I think the ultimate statement on this is that Apple had uh, their Black Friday holiday sale, and I purchased these two movies together as a bundle, and, you know, it was great. To, to have a copy of the film we were going to watch, you know, because basically buying it was ended up being basically a dollar more than renting it, um, which is how we make a lot of our digital purchasing decisions <laughs> lately. But I got a discount on the 2019 version. I bought the, the 94 part. version so I could get the 2019 version for less. I thought when you <laughs> said, uh, when you mentioned Apple, that you were going to mention the uh, the television show Dickinson, which I was not, stars but... Haley Steinfeld. I highly recommend that show to anybody 
remotely interested in the premise of the show because it is so good. But I will say... It's Mamet, right? It's Mamet, yeah. So she, she plays... Soja? Soja Mamet plays Louisa May Alcott in one episode. I think it's the Thanksgiving episode, actually, because she, like, mm-hmm. comes to visit them yeah. or whatever. I've only seen one or two episodes. It's so good. Weirdly, even though... What that show is doing is that even though it is exploring those people and that time period through a more Gen, Gen Z or even millennial lens, and it's not using, like... It's not trying to be, like, entirely faithful to what's happening. It is actually faithful to who these people were. And so Louisa May Alcott in that episode is extremely funny because she is closer to who she actually was than the way most people think about her being. Mm-hmm. Like, she's talking about, oh, oh that's not, I can't write this, that. It's not, it's not going to sell. Is, I'm going to write that because that's going to sell. This yeah. is an idea for a novel. It's something about family, and it's a family with no father, just a bunch of sisters and their mom, and it starts on Christmas. But stick with me. What if one of the sisters dies? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love her so much. And yeah, she actually pitches Moby Dick at the dinner table, but then she goes, nah, that'd never sell. That's really funny. <laughs> That's cute. All right, so final thoughts before we close this podcast what new christmas or holiday films are we looking forward to this year i do have to mention that we have already watched the guardians of the galaxy holiday special which i think we all really liked and would recommend honestly i might start watching that every year too because i liked it so much um and we have already watched or elise and i have already watched falling for christmas as mentioned before but what are some other films that we're looking forward to coming out oh i know i'll i can answer this one as we know, the, the, this is the, the season uh, that celebrates the miracle of miracles, right? Avatar 2. <laughs> Not really a Christmas movie, I don't think, unless there's something really big being left out of the trailer. I mean... You don't know, I guess. I mean, I, I know that, that typically, typically, uh, actors will not do more than one holiday movie per season. You know, like a lot of the people who do the the holiday movies for Hallmark or Netflix will just do one a year, right? I just want to point out, I know you're thinking that Avatar 2 isn't a Christmas movie, but Zoe Saldana was not in the Guardians Christmas special. That is true. That is true. So, she has some things to make up for. Yep. Merry Christmas, everybody. Elise, what movies are you looking forward to this holiday season? If I'm being honest, it's whatever Tessa tells me to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't actually think there's a lot of great ones that I'm really looking I don't forward think to this a year. Lot this year. But I am really looking forward to Hanukkah on Rye, yeah, I'm which we discussed, watch that with you for sure. Which is a Hallmark movie about rival Jewish delis. Yes. And as soon as I heard that premise, I was like, well, of course I'm watching this yeah. and I'm watching it with Elise. I do have one more. Yes. I either like my pop culture ironic as intended or with no whiff of irony at all anywhere there. Which is why I am looking forward to the Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell, Spirited. You're, you are looking forward to the newest adaptation of because, A Christmas Carol. Because I do not hate Joel. Is, you like Will Ferrell a lot. Is that another Christmas Carol-y type movie? It's more, I think it's more in the in the, in the the vein of Scrooged. Okay. Yeah, where it's like a like Christmas Carol. Like it's an adaptation Carol, of an adaptation. But like, no, yeah, in the, it's I like just, set in present days. I have this mental block with Will Ferrell, and I it's probably being forced to watch yeah. his movies by various 
men I was dating. <laughs> I will not be watching Elf this Christmas. I don't like Elf. I, I don't love Elf. No, know but... that I've ever finished watching it. You sit on a throne of lies. Is my Thanks, favorite Mr. Narwhal. Yeah, that was what I immediately thought of when you said you didn't know a narwhal, like that narwhals were real. Yes. I immediately thought of that <laughs> Thanks scene. Thanks for outing me on the podcast. We can take it out. No, 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 you don't have to. I'm just joking. I, uh, I tweeted it, so yeah. it's fine. <laughs> but the scene where the narwhal is like, I hope you find your dad, buddy. Aww. So that, after however many hours, two hours, is all our thoughts on it Christmas is, films. It is now after Christmas. It is now <laughs> after Christmas. We've gone through the whole holiday. We're, so thank you for coming on and during your break uh, visiting us to have this live special production of Monkey Off My Backlog, Elise. Yes, this has been wonderful. And I don't just mean the podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at chicken double underscore tendy. Tendi is spelled T-N-D-I. You can find my podcast, Podrates, a Deep Space Nine podcast, on Twitter and Letterboxd at Podrates, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me online at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at The By Paradox. All right, and next time is the beginning of... <sighs> Star Wars! The 11, the 11 days. days of Star Wars. Now, if you've been paying attention, if this is not your first time listening to the podcast, you know that when Matt gets together with us, as, as he will during the first day of Star Wars, that those episodes are, are rather lengthy, <laughs> However lengthy this episode has become, Elise is probably up the ante. Our producer Ryan has has previously stated that he will also. I don't know these episodes. I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is each of these episodes might be four hours long. <laughs> and and you know I think we might have some things to say about Star Wars. I I think those uh, there's some really interesting little indie films that I'm looking forward to. Um, talking about sam for those of us who are not part of our monkey discord do you want to talk about the method of how we are going to be watching star wars so they can begin well <clears throat> i suggest um some some hot tea with some lemon because <laughs> there will be a lot of yelling a lot of a lot of anger a lot of emotions very very not jedi is that what you meant no i meant the order <laughs> we are going to go timeline chronological, which means we'll start with the prequel trilogy break for the two non Skywalker centric movies, Solo and Rogue One, and then just battle our way through episodes four through nine. And in addition, we will be dealing with some of the other works that have happened uh, since Disney bought the franchise from George Lucas. As an example, we will, on the first episode of the 12 Days of Christmas, we're talking about The Phantom Menace, we'll also be talking about the newly released Tales of the Jedi, much of which take place during that or around the era of the first film. Is that what Perfect. You yeah, so join us beginning next week with Matt on The Phantom Menace. We'll be releasing one episode a day. We love doing this where we watch them in the morning, record at night, and then furiously edit. 
Thank you, Ryan, in advance do for you, dealing with us. When you say furiously edit, do you mean like editing like quickly or angrily? Uh, you know, depending on the film, both. Okay. I think. All right. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today. What pop culture you've crossed off your list lately. What you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sorry. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.